you've got your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn with me to the seventh chapter of Amos. Amos chapter 7, and this morning we'll be looking at verses 10 through 17. And I told you last week in our study of Amos that chapter 7 begins a third and final section of the book. In the first two chapters, by means of a series of oracles, Amos warned the people of a judgment that was coming. And largely, that's what the message of Amos is. Uh, The northern kingdom to which Amos had been sent, the kingdom of Israel, had fallen into sin and idolatry. Society was characterized by so much uh, wickedness and hypocrisy, and God sends his prophet into the north with a message that was intended to wake them up. It served as a wake-up call. And so the first couple of chapters, he's warning of judgment that's coming. Chapters 3 through 6, through a series of messages that he preaches, Amos confronts the people with their sin, and he's very specific. In chapters 7, 8, and 9, by means of a series of five visions that he receives from God, Amos then presents Israel with some pictures of judgment and what it will look like once it arrives. The first three of those visions are found in the first nine verses of chapter 7, where judgment is described as involving a plague of locusts. God shows the prophet really how serious the sins of his people were. Amos intercedes, and God says, this shall not be. The second vision is that of a consuming fire. The prophet intercedes on behalf of the people, and God says, this too shall not be. And then the third vision in verses 8 and 9 is that of a plumb line. God is setting a plumb line in the midst of his people, and that plumb line is his righteous standard. God's righteousness as revealed in his law, the wall of Israel was crooked and was about to be knocked down. Well, the message that was being driven home to the people really struck a nerve with the people, And we really see that here in verse number 10 and the verses that follow. One person has said in this passage, we find Amos at his courageous best. This prophet who's preaching a message of judgment, such a message is sure to prove controversial. And you'll see that that's exactly the case. So if you've got your Bible there, verse 10 of Amos chapter 7 The scripture says, then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go Flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there. Prophesy there. But never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary. And it's a temple of the kingdom. And then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock And the Lord said to me, go, prophesy to my people Israel. 
Now therefore hear the word of the Lord. You say, don't prophesy against Israel and don't preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city. Your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword. Your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. And you yourself will die in an unclean land. And Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. I want to speak from this subject this morning, a profile of spiritual courage. We find in these verses, through the example of Amos, what I'm calling a profile of spiritual courage. You know, courage is one of those things that is often praised but seldom possessed. Uh, read a story, whether it's true or not, I don't know, but it was the story of a missionary in India who is said to have been bowing one night in prayer by his bedside on his knees when suddenly a large python, excuse me, a python lowered from the rafters of his bungalow and fell upon his body. The snake made no attempt to constrict, but the missionary knew that if he struggled, the snake would crush him. And so with self-control, with poise, with courage born of faith, he silently went on praying, barely even breathing, until the snake unwound itself and went on its way. Now, just for the record, I wouldn't need courage in that situation because I've had a heart attack and died on the spot. I'm just being honest. But I read that and I thought, you know, how, how true it is that the enemy often coils up and tries to put the squeeze on the lives of God's people. Have you felt him doing that in your life of late? I mean, men and women, we have a very real enemy who opposes us in our faith. And the Apostle Paul writes about this in Ephesians chapter 6 when he says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you might be able to stand against the wiles of the, the devil. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and hosts of wickedness in high places. So it's a spiritual battle. And yet Paul says it's a battle that demands we stand. But we don't stand in our own strength. We don't stand in our own courage. We stand in the strength and in the courage that God's Spirit gives us as believers. And so spiritual courage is the need of the hour because we're in the middle of a spiritual battle. In this passage here in Amos chapter 7, Amos is engaged in a spiritual battle. Both his ministry, his message, uh, it's opposed by this powerful figure named Amaziah. Who is Amaziah? Well, the Bible says he's a priest at Bethel. And that meant that he was the leading representative of the official state religion of the day. He's a guy who had both the approval and the backing of the king. And so Amos is confronted by Amaziah here in these verses. Amaziah is an antagonist. He's someone who's trying to use all of his power and all of his influence to silence God's prophet. And yet, remarkably, Amos shows courage under fire. And so for that reason, he's a profile of spiritual courage. And I want you to notice just a few principles drawn from his experience that we can apply to our own situation. 
Uh, Number one, notice with me this principle. uh, God's servants will be faced with conflict. It just goes with the territory. Being a servant of God carries with it conflict in the world. And the conflict that Amos is facing here is this objection to his ministry that comes from Amaziah, chief priest at Bethel. Now, some background here is needed. We've we've dealt with this somewhat in our study through this book. But keep in mind that the political situation in Amos's day involved two rival kings, and that went all the way back to the time when the nation was divided into two kingdoms. When Solomon's son Rehoboam was king, the nation was divided. Ten tribes of Israel broke away from the Davidic throne. They established their own kingdom in the north, and Samaria was a city that eventually eventually became the capital of this northern kingdom. In the south, you had the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. These remain loyal to the Davidic throne. So you've got the kingdom of Israel in the north, the kingdom of Judah in the south. Amos is from Judah, and yet he's called by God to go into the northern kingdom and preach this message that's recorded in the book of Amos. But Israel's first king, Jeroboam, developed his own state religion there in the north, and it was something intended to rival the Mosaic system in the south. He had two golden calves set up there at Bethel. You can read about this in 1 Kings chapter 12, but essentially he tells the citizens of the northern kingdom that no longer did they have to go to Jerusalem to worship, but he had come up with a religious system that was convenient and just as good as the situation in Jerusalem. And so what he did was really just design his own religion and convince the nation that it was okay. So Jeroboam sought to strip the northern kingdom from its Jerusalem heritage. And he introduces this false religion of personal convenience, one of political expedience, but one that had uh, rejected divine revelation. It was a counterfeit sponsored by the state, and the state had its own priesthood on the payroll. And so the religion of the establishment, this is what Amos comes up against here in chapter 7. Now many, many years later, you've got Amaziah who's serving as the priest of the shrine there at Bethel. He's the leading proponent of Israel's false religion. He's not a man of God, but he's a man with a title that had been given to him by political appointment. And so as such, he's got this personal interest in maintaining the status quo, which was being turned upside down by God's prophet. And so that's why Amaziah sets his sight on the prophet Amos here. Because Amos had been interfering with the establishment's way of doing things. And let me just tell you something. The establishment, they don't like it when you monkey with their way of doing things. So when you're serving God in the place where God has called you, doing what God's told you to do, you can always expect that opposition, it will come in the form of conflict. It's true for Amos. It's true for any servant who wants to be obedient to the call of God. The enemy will always set his target on the man or woman who resolves to be a witness for Christ. He'll target the church that's making the most impact for the sake of the kingdom. Conflict is something to be anticipated. It's never a matter of if it comes, 
but always a matter of when it comes. And so in these verses, there are at least three ways that Amos faces this kind of conflict. Notice first that he faces it in the form of accusation. That's essentially what's being leveled against God's prophet here. It's accusation coming from Amaziah. Verse 10, Amaziah sends word to Jeroboam II, king of Israel. And here's what he says. Amos has conspired against you. The land is not able to bear his words. You keep in mind what Amos had been preaching. Verses 8 and 9, how God was setting up his plumb line. Israel was found wanting. The high places of Isaac, the sanctuaries of Israel would be laid waste. And God said that he would rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Well, Amaziah seizes upon that. He twists and manipulates those words. And he accuses Amos to King Jeroboam, basically saying that Amos was trying to stir up a political coup. Amos was responsible for trying to uh, come up with some kind of conspiracy against the king. And so he's slandering Amos to King Jeroboam, saying that Amos was guilty of treason. Amos posed a political problem. Uh, Amos posed a people problem. Uh, He's stirring up too much trouble among the people. Verse 11, Amaziah says Amos is a personal problem to the king himself. Because he said Jeroboam will die by the sword. Now listen to me. All Amos had been doing was stating the facts from God's word. But you see, that was too politically incorrect for a guy like Amaziah. And so Amaziah seizes upon this. He creates this false impression of God's prophet by twisting his words, slandering his character, and maligning his intentions. Even accusing Amos of a seditious plot against the king. Folks, listen to me. Satan has attempted to ruin the people of God through this type of thing all throughout the history of God's people. He's not called the accuser of the brethren for no reason. You ever face this kind of thing in your own life? Maybe someone who misrepresents you. Someone who twists your words so that they could be used against you in some way, either doing it intentionally or unintentionally. Someone who slanders your character. Someone who accuses you of being something that you're not. Insinuating that you've got questionable motives. I'm going to tell you right now, there's not a person who's ever been in a leadership position that's not experienced this kind of thing at some point. And yet beyond that, every faithful servant of God who's simply faithful to live out his or her calling upon their life, they're going to be subjected to accusation. As a witness for Jesus where you work. As a witness for Jesus among your extended family or a a group of your peers, you can expect to be the focus of this same kind of accusation that Amos is experiencing here. Amos was a problem, according to Amaziah. But that was from Amaziah's perspective. In fact, Amos was the solution to the problem. Amos is the man to whom God's word had been revealed. And so Amos didn't need to retreat. Amaziah needed to repent. That's what needed to happen. And so the thing is, you want to be faithful to God and his word in a politically correct society like ours, 
then you need to know that at some level or another, we're going to face accusation and misrepresentation as the people of God. And this will become even more so the case as the church is pushed further and further to the margins of society. And we live in a society now that's not unlike the one that Amos found himself in, one where biblical values have been pushed to the fringe of that society. The illustration of this, you know, just a few years ago, you remember the fiasco that sort of surrounded some comments that Dan uh, Cathy the CEO of Chick-fil-A, some comments that he made in the media just a few years ago that were just misrepresented and taken way out of context. An accusation was made. If you know anything about the Kathy family, you know that they love Jesus. Dan Kathy, his father before him, Truett Kathy. I mean, they've given millions of dollars to all kinds of causes around the world. But a few years ago, there was an interview that Dan Kathy did. I think it was with Baptist Press, but he was asked a question about his business model. And here's how he responded to Baptist Press. He said, we're very much supportive of the family, the biblical definition of the family unit. We're a family-owned business, a family-led business. We're married to our first wives, and we give God thanks for that. We know it might not be popular with everyone, but we thank God that we live in a country where we can share our values and operate on biblical principles. Those were his comments, but within a day, that interview was spread throughout media outlets. It led to outrage. All of that led to a second follow-up interview where someone asked him about his views on marriage. And here's what he said in that interview. He said, I think that we're inviting God's judgment on our nation when we shake our fist at him and say, we know better than you as to what constitutes a marriage. I pray God's mercy on our generation that has such a prideful, arrogant attitude to think that we have the audacity to define what marriage is all about. Now, any sensible person could have read that, could have agreed or disagreed, one thing you can't do is accuse Dan Cathy of hate or bigotry, but that's exactly what happened. Social media got fired up. The media tried to paint Chick-fil-A as a hate establishment. I ate there four times a week when all that was going on. <laughs> I mean, there were protests. Politicians all had to wade in. The mayor of Chicago at the time said, quote, Chick-fil-A values are not Chicago values. The mayor of Boston tried to block any attempts to open Chick-fil-A in that city. The mayor of San Francisco tried to keep Chick-fil-A uh, within 40 miles out of the city. Folks, slander, accusation, misrepresentation, all of that can be expected if we want to faithfully live out the call of God upon our lives as God's people in an unbelieving world. It's the same thing that Amos is dealing with here in this confrontation with Amaziah. It's the same thing that you too will experience at some point as you faithfully shine your light for Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. If you have no critics as far as your faith is concerned, then let me tell you something. Your faith is suspect. 
Woe to you when everybody has nothing but nice words to say about you. It could just mean that I'm not being a witness for Christ like I ought to be. One person expressed it this way, there is no faithful proclamation apart from some level of misrepresentation in the world. It goes with the territory. So, accusation, that's part of the conflict that Amos endures. And then notice another thing about this conflict that he endures. Uh, It involved temptation. Because in verse 12, Amaziah says to Amos, Oh, seer, go! Flee away to the land of Judah. Eat your bread there. Preach your message there. That word seer was originally a positive term that was used to refer to God's prophets. It was a word that emphasized a man's call from God and his divine insight to to receive the word and then preach that word to others. But linguistic scholars say that by Amos' day, the word had become an insult that threw off on the prophet's task. So think of Amaziah here giving a backhanded slap to a backwoods preacher who he thought was on the wrong side of history. Amaziah says, oh, Amos, that kind of preaching you're doing, that'll get you some notoriety down there in Judah. You'll have a better audience in the south. They like to hear that kind of fire and brimstone preaching down there. But you're causing way too much problems here. Go, just go back to Judah. And so the temptation then is for Amos to go back to what was familiar, to go back to where he had been at the first. By going back to Judah, he could find security. By going back to Judah, he could find what was familiar. He could be popular. By the way, oftentimes God will call you and he'll put a calling upon your life And then when Amaziah rears his ugly head, when conflict tends to creep up, the grass sure looks greener somewhere else, doesn't it? That's often the temptation. You're not married very long and you encounter conflict. And some of you are faced with that kind of temptation in your marriage Some of you are faced with that kind of temptation vocationally. You know that God's called you to something, but man, the grass sure looks greener over there on the other side of the fence. It's probably because it's over a septic tank and you just don't know it. (laughs) So Amos is faced with this conflict, involves accusation, temptation, and then intimidation. Amaziah says, go back where you came from. Verse 13, never preach again in Bethel. This is the king's sanctuary. This is the temple of the kingdom. In other words, Amaziah is trying to use his power and influence to intimidate Amos into a place of submission. Man, if you knew what was good for you, you'd get out of town. It's the same kind of intimidation that Peter and John face in Acts chapter 5 whenever the religious leaders called for their arrest. You remember they were brought in before the council for questioning. And the high priest said, we told you not to teach in this name Jesus, but you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, and here's what they said, we've got to obey God rather than man. So go ahead and intimidate, go ahead and threaten, but it's more important to us that we obey God rather than man. 
That's what Amaziah is trying to do here to Amos. He's trying to intimidate him into silence. He had filled the nation with his message, and the land was not able to bear his words. Which, by the way, that ought to be a compliment for God's prophet. The fact that the land was not able to bear the words of the prophet. You want to know why? Because the land didn't believe the words of the prophet. And that was the issue. Because they didn't believe the words of the prophet, they weren't able to bear the words of the prophet. But make no mistake about it, the land can always bear the words of some Amaziah, some ear tickler who always wants to give people what they want to hear, a false prophet, someone who has backed away from the truth, who doesn't believe the truth, but wants his or her life to be coated in some thin veneer of religious whitewash. The world can always tolerate the words of an Amaziah, but it can't tolerate the words of an Amos. But you see, God is the one who sent Amos into the north with this message. So here's the truth, folks. We can expect conflict in the Christian life. At some point, we'll be accused, tempted to run and hide, even intimidated into silence, And yet, this is the way that Jesus said things would be. Now, there's a second thing that I want you to see here. Not only only do God's servants face conflict, but how how does Amos respond to this conflict? Well, the principle is this. God's servant has got to be faithful under pressure. You imagine all of this pressure that's being put on Amos at this point. How is he responding? He's responding by being faithful under pressure. When the squeeze is being put to his life, he's faithful. He does not buckle under the weight of the pressure. And he gives us an example of, of, of really how to respond to conflict in the way that he responds to Amaziah. A couple things are worth mentioning here. Amos understood the source of his security. How can you be faithful under pressure? Well, let me ask you this question. Where do you go to for security and identity? Because how you answer that question will, to a large degree, answer whether or not you're going to be faithful under pressure. What's the source of Amos' security? Look at what he says. Uh, Verse 14, he says, I was no prophet. I wasn't even the son of a prophet. I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. So he's not appealing to pedigree. He's not seeking his security and credential. He simply says, God took me from following the flock. It was God who chose me. It was God who called me. And that is the basis of his security. And men and women, when God alone is the basis of your security, it doesn't matter what the Amaziahs of this world have to say about you. It doesn't matter when the enemy comes along and slanders and accuses. You can sing the words of the hymn. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou, mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. That was Amos in his sense of security. He's not a self-appointed prophet. He's not in it for self-interest. He's simply being faithful to the call of God on his life. And that's the secret of his courage. He feared no man because he knew where he stood with God. 
And when the moment of testing came, when a human authority pressured him to give up, here's what he said. I've got a calling from God to obey. I've got a word from God to preach, and I've got a work for God that I've got to do. Kind of reminds me of Nehemiah. In the sixth chapter of Nehemiah, you remember when Nehemiah is building the wall? You've got some opposition in the form of a couple of guys named Sanballat and Tobiah. Sanballat and Tobiah. As the wall's going up, as the work is being accomplished, what do these guys do? Well, listen to this. Nehemiah chapter 6. Sanballat has a letter written, and in that letter, here's what it said. It's reported among the nations that you and the Jews are intending to rebel, and that's why you're building the wall. According to these reports, you want to become their king. And so you've set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there's a new king in Judah. That's conflict, that's accusation, that's slander. That wasn't Nehemiah's intentions. Here's how he responds, verse 8, Nehemiah, I told him, no such things as you have said have been done, for you're inventing them out of your own mind. Nehemiah responds to his opposition the same way that Amos responds to his. I've got a calling from God to obey. I've got a word from God to preach, and I've got a work from God that I've got to do. Well, Jesus, he experiences this same level of misrepresentation and accusation. Matthew chapter 26, as he's there on trial, all these false witnesses are brought in and all these trumped up charges, accusation leveled upon him. Well, but Jesus had a calling from God on his life. He had a work from God that he had to do and nothing was going to keep him from accomplishing that work of suffering and dying as the sacrifice for sin upon the cross. And listen, you respond to your criticism and your critics the same way. When when the world comes along and wants to put the squeeze on the church, here's got to be our response. We've got a calling from God that we must obey. We have a word from God that we must preach, and we've got a work from God that we've got to be about. What is that work? It's taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's making disciples of every nation. And and someone says, well, what's the basis of our authority? Who said you could do that? The Lord of the church is our authority. Jesus said in Matthew 28, ah, he said this, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And in view of his authority, you make disciples. You share the gospel. It doesn't matter what Amaziah has to say. So that's the basis of the prophet's security, and then the discharge of Amos' responsibility. Verse 15, he says, God took me from following the flock. God said to me, go prophesy. Amaziah was telling him to do one thing, but God told him to do another, and he had to obey God rather than men. Now bear in mind the fact that it would have been easy at this point for Amos to go back to Judah. I mean, imagine... You're somewhere, you're being opposed, you're in a difficult, tight spot as a servant from God, just being obedient to live out the calling that God's placed upon your life, and the religious establishment comes along, and they begin threatening you, they begin intimidating you, why don't you just go back to Judah, Amos, and you know what, I imagine that Judah sounded pretty good. 
I imagine that those fields in Tekoa sounded pretty good. Judah, perhaps, was the place where his family was, where his fields were, where his flock was. But listen, Judah was not the place where his faith ultimately rested. His faith was in the God who had called him, and he had a responsibility to carry out. And that's true for every believer in the world. Now, folks, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you something right now. You better buckle up and brace for what's coming. It's never been easy to be a follower of Christ in an unbelieving world. But in a post-Christian society, it's only going to get tougher. It's only going to get tougher. And so someone says, well, how do you not bend? How do you not buckle under the weight of it all, under the pressure? Well, you got to just understand something that Amos understood. God and God alone is the source of your strength. Jesus Christ is the source of your identity. Here we have no continuing city. But we're looking for that city whose builder and maker is God. A city that has foundations. That's what I'm longing for and looking to. One final principle here, and I'll finish with this. God's servants must remain firm in their obedience. They're going to be faced with conflict. That's a given. They've got to be faithful under pressure. And they've got to be firm in their obedience. That's what Amos is. Verse 16, he tells Amaziah, you say, don't preach. Well, let me tell you what God says. And he tells Amaziah that the time would come when he would lose those very things that he had placed his security in. Things like his wife and his family, his position. And it wouldn't be but just a couple of decades later that the word proclaimed by Amos came to pass when the Assyrian army fell upon Samaria and carried the northern kingdom away into captivity. Better to be on the wrong side of history in the eyes of the world than on the wrong side of history in the eyes of God. Because when it was all said and done, Amaziah went down in history as a priest for hire, a man who worshipped at his own shrine and despised the word, while Amos lives on in immortal memory as a man of God, a profile of spiritual courage. So folks, let me just ask you, do you expect to walk in the footsteps of Jesus in the pathway of the prophets and expect no antagonism from the world? Can we avoid the social stigma that comes with bearing the cross? Or will we not join ranks with the prophets and the apostles, with men and women of church history who were more than willing and more than eager to be seen as filth in the eyes of the world for the sake of Jesus Christ? And Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are you when you're persecuted. Blessed are you when people revile you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. He said that's the way they treated the prophets. That's the way they treated Amos and others. I'd much rather be an Amos in the king's crosshairs than an Amaziah on the king's payroll. Amen. What about you? You know something, Amos simply points us to Jesus who in a much greater way 
was the courageous servant who gave his life in obedient service to the will of his father. From the moment of his birth to his final breath upon the cross, he knew what it meant to be faced with conflict. Yet he remained firm in obedience, faithful under pressure, knowing that his dying would not be in vain, but that through his act of obedience, many sons and daughters would be brought to glory. And that's why he could tell his disciples, these things I've spoken to you, that in me you might have peace. He said, in the world, you're going to have tribulation. But be of good cheer. Literally, have courage. Because I have overcome the world. Let's stand and let's pray this morning. A profile of spiritual courage. Well, I tell you, the days that we're living in call for some courage in the lives of God's people. Courage. You know, the early church, when they got together, they prayed for boldness. They prayed for courage, that God would give them courage to simply declare the truth. Why did they need courage? Well, because they were facing an onslaught of opposition from an unbelieving world. A world of people, the minds of whom they've been blinded by the enemy. Men and women who are in darkness but don't realize that they're in darkness. And you can rest assured the enemy wants to keep them in that darkness. And so the enemy is going to stir up opposition and he's going to stir up conflict. He's going to use the Amaziahs of the world to try to accuse and slander the Amoses of the world. But Jesus said that his followers could be of good cheer because he's overcome the world. And in light of that victory and his strength, we, we go out into the world. And we live and we serve and we live out the calling of God upon our life. Seeking to point men and women to the hope of Jesus. Every head bowed and every eye closed. If you don't know Christ as your Savior this morning, I want to urge you, why not today? Turn from your sin and place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Lord, in Jesus' name, thank you for this profile of spiritual courage that we see in your servant Amos. Who simply points us to the Lord Jesus Christ who in a much greater way, Lord was perfect in courage, faced with conflict, faithful under pressure, but firm in his obedience to go to the cross, to rise again from the dead so that sinners could have hope. Lord, for those who don't know you this morning, my prayer is that they come to know you in a personal way, saving way, through faith, by your grace. And God, as your people, would you use us in these days to shine our light, to use our voice and our words to share the message of Christ with others, to be willing, Lord, to do whatever it takes to lay down our life in obedience to the call of God upon our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.